Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this September 28th, it was 50 years ago to the day that Paul Henderson scored his historic goal, the dying seconds of Game 8 in Moscow to clinch the 1972 Summit Series for Canada over the Soviet Union. We revisit a conversation I had with Henderson earlier this month about that incredible night, and we speak with the man in goal that night for the Soviets, number 20, Vladislav Tretsiak, about what the series meant to him and his team, to hockey in general in his country, and his memories of that Henderson goal. We head to Porto Basque in Newfoundland to speak with the editor-in-chief of the local paper, Wreckhouse Press, about not only covering the disaster that descended on this community, but living through post-tropical storm Fiona as it tore through the town. But we start in Florida, where Hurricane Ian roared into the southwestern part of the state today as one of the most powerful storms to ever make landfall in the continental U.S., bringing massive storm surges that have ripped away homes and washed out roads. Why did it pack such a huge punch? We'll find out. Let's start tonight in Florida, where Hurricane Ian, we've been talking about it all week. It made landfall near Cayo Costa this afternoon as a massive Category 4 storm with maximum sustained winds of 241 kilometers an hour. 241. Reports saying it is the fifth strongest hurricane ever to make landfall in the continental U.S. Here is the sound of it pounding Fort Myers earlier today. Yeah, you can hear those winds, but it's the storm surges, the water that's been causing all kinds of damage and destruction in southwest Florida, and it continues to get hammered tonight. There are more than a million people in the dark. A coastal sheriff's office reported that it was already getting a number of phone calls from people trapped in their homes tonight. Lived in Naples for nearly 30 years. That house halfway underwater, there goes my car floating away. Inland flooding, the deadliest component of hurricanes for the past 30 years. Hospitals in the area prepared for the worst. Several now on lockdown, their doors shut to protect patients and staff until the storm passes. Backup generators on hand to continue vital services with the power out. Now, officials in Lee County, which is home to Fort Myers, say communities there are decimated. The commissioner, Kevin Wren, uh, says the area got hit with nearly five meter storm surges. You know, I've gotten multiple reports of um, some hotels that are gone, um, houses that uh, people are in their attics uh, with water that high. Now, the southwest corner of the state, if you're looking at a map, of course, you know, there's the Atlantic side and the Gulf side. This is the Gulf side. Tampa's about in the middle. Fort Myers is about halfway down from there. That's where uh, Ian came ashore today. Officials warn it'll be some time before first responders can make rescue tonight. Well, joining me now is Ryan Chuchalet. He's president and chief meteorologist with Weather Tiger in the Florida capital, Tallahassee, and has spent a long time watching and studying hurricanes in Florida. Where better to do it? Thanks for your time tonight, Ryan. Well, thank you for having me, Ben. It's been a long day in the state, but, uh, you know, I'm, I at least live in a part of Florida that wasn't directly impacted by, uh, by Hurricane Ian. This has been, I mean, you've been watching these things for years. I know you started this company with your wife and you have all this expertise and you've been watching hurricanes in Florida for a long time. Tell me about Ian, because it, it just looks like such a monster and it came ashore in a place where we don't often see hurricanes come ashore in Florida. 
Right. It, it is an, a rather unusual landfall location, especially for a hurricane of this intensity, which is a, a Category 4 hurricane on the Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale, and just shy of being the highest uh, classification of a Category 5. Um, there's really only one other hurricane in the modern era that's anything that's followed a track and had an intensity like this one, and that was Hurricane Charlie in 2004. Um, so this actually, oddly enough, this made landfall at the exact same place and uh, with the exact same intensity as Hurricane Charlie did 18 years ago. Just in Fort Myers in that area. Uh, just seeing the storm surges, though, I mean, it was the, the amount of destruction that this is causing um, seems, I mean, it's at this point, I guess it's nightfall. We won't really know the full extent until tomorrow, but some of those images today were just devastating. Absolutely. I mean, surge is the number one threat from a landfalling hurricane. Uh, you know, people kind of have this idea in their heads of a hurricane being a windstorm. And it's certainly, of course, that is a major hazard uh, from hurricanes. But, you you know, the advice that meteorologists give is you can you can hide from wind, but you need to run from water. You can't you can't hide from water. It's going to if it's going to find you when the waters rise. Um, and there has been a lot of uh, relatively recent development in southwest Florida, low lying areas that have been. Uh, developed in the last 20 years, people moving down to Southwest Florida who don't have a lot of experience with uh, hurricanes. And, you know, we, we don't know the full extent of what's happened in Fort Myers and Cape Coral and a lot of those other larger cities in Southwest Florida right now. I think there will be more clarity on the situation tomorrow. But, you know, certainly I've I've seen over the course of the day some, some very, very alarming uh, images of houses being lifted off their foundations and carried away by floodwaters, uh, surge waters. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping for the best, but I've seen some things that are, that are pretty frightening. Yeah, that's an area that's very popular with Canadians, needless to say, of course, uh, not, not as much recently because of COVID, but, uh, but a very popular area. Tell me a bit about the topography there and why it, it would be in, in, in harm's way in such a way that we would see such destruction. I mean, it looked like it was just a clean hit when it came to the storm surges coming in. And, and a, lot of that, a lot of the development down there would be unprotected from that. Right. And, you know, this section of the Gulf of Mexico coastline is very vulnerable to storm surge because the continental shelf actually extends several hundred kilometers uh, west of the Florida Gulf Coast out into the Gulf of Mexico. So a hurricane like Ian, it reached Category 3 hurricane intensity shortly before reaching Cuba, rapidly reattained Category 3 intensity after crossing western Cuba. Um, and it also expanded dramatically uh, overnight last night into this morning. So the huge wind field, uh, with all those winds out of the south, pushing a large wall of water out ahead of the storm uh, on the, the eastern side of the storm, pushing it towards land, gets up on those uh, shallow continental shelf waters, and it really has nowhere to go. Uh, and if you also look at the kind of the symmetry specifically of these harbors, Charlotte Harbor, where Hurricane Ian made landfall, and then also the Fort Myers area, there's a lot of these kind of triangular or lens-shaped bays and inlets. And again, those act of focus on rushing water uh, with those onshore winds that are pushing the water up into the bays and rivers and estuaries. And the water simply doesn't have anywhere to go up other than up on into developed areas. I, I know often, you know, uh, forewarned is, is, is forearmed to some extent. In this case, were the forecasts accurate and, and were people given enough time to get out? I mean, I, I gather some people didn't, they didn't have to, but uh, I imagine a lot of people did, did run as you, as you explained. Yes, uh, and I know, I know many did. Um, 
Hurricane Ian was a very challenging forecast, uh, and it required all the expertise that the that the forecasters, the world's best forecasters at the National Hurricane Center, could bring to bear uh, on it. And you know, the Fort Myers area, the Port Charlotte Charlotte Harbor area where this came in, they were consistently within what's called the cone of uncertainty, which is uh, kind of a circle. So the National Hurricane Center makes forecasts for you know, where they think the storm is going to be and how strong it's going to be going out to five days. And then they draw a circle around each of those points that uh, the size of that circle is determined by the average error. How, uh, how wrong are, are the forecasts usually over the last five hurricane seasons on average? And the idea is basically that um, the center of the hurricane will track within that forecast cone about two-thirds of the time. Now, of course, uh, the impacts and hazards of a hurricane extend far beyond the cone, and they certainly are in this case. Uh, but, you know, Fort Myers and, and Port Charlotte were consistently in the cone. The forecast did move, you know, back and forth a little bit, but they were cons- these areas that the landfall occurred today were consistently within the areas where, you know, if you're in the cone, you need to be taking preparations. So um, I think the forecasts were absolutely as good as they could be for kind of a very difficult forecast scenario where a lot of our computer guidance models were just in complete disagreement with each other, even up to a couple days before the storm got to Florida. Yeah, that would be tough. I mean, we read so much in the past few days about Tampa St. Pete being the area that was going to be hit, but it it didn't. I mean, it it hasn't so far. I I guess the storm is still there and still sitting and moving slowly. It is. uh, So Ian is still a hurricane this evening, uh, still a category two, I believe, at last check. Uh, It's moving kind of northeast, east-northeast across the Florida Peninsula, but it's moving away from Tampa. And crucially for Tampa, their winds remained offshore for the entirety of the storm. So Tampa, St. Petersburg, they got wind gusts of 75, 80, 85 miles an hour. They've gotten very heavy rainfall. Uh, Five to 10 inches of rain has fallen there. And I know there's some flash flooding, um, freshwater flooding issues with that. But what they did not see was storm surge. They did not see water pile up into Tampa Bay. In fact, quite the opposite. Those offshore strong winds actually pushed the water out of Tampa Bay and uh, revealed a lot of land that's not usually uh, accessible uh, today. So um, Tampa, Tampa lucked out. Uh, I think they got off uh, with, with, with some luck. Uh, it really is a wor- the worst case scenario for the storm would have been a track over or just west of Tampa Bay uh, that would have, uh, with those southeasterly winds pushing water up into Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay is like a cul-de-sac. There's nowhere for that water to go. And there's a very heavy population density in some extremely low-lying areas. So Tampa dodged a bullet. Uh, they're still getting some wind and rain overnight tonight, but uh, they will not see uh, anywhere near as bad an outcome as was on the table a couple days ago. Yeah, maybe a silver lining in all this. I'm speaking with Ryan Trishelet. He's president and chief meteorologist of Weather Tiger in Tallahassee. He's speaking to us tonight from the Florida Capitol. Uh, when we come back, just what's next for Ian? Where is it going tonight? Where will it be tomorrow? Uh, stay with us. I don't know if you're watching the images of Hurricane Ian and the devastation that it's created in southwest Florida tonight. We're talking about that with Ryan Trishelet. He's the president and chief meteorologist with Weather Tiger in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, so, Ryan, where is this storm headed next? I imagine it's going to lose lose force, but it still packs a bit of a punch as it's going to move across Florida. Right. So currently it's located inland uh, about 80 miles south of Orlando, and it's moving northeast still a Category 2 hurricane, packing wind gusts of around 100 miles per hour. 
or 160 kilometers an hour, sorry. Uh, and uh, it's going to be actually emerging back into the Atlantic Ocean probably sometime tomorrow after completing its transit of the Florida Peninsula. So still another 12, 18 hours of some pretty heavy rain and some gusty wind impacts uh, for central Florida, the Orlando area. And then this is all going to move out into the Atlantic. And likely it's going to kind of curve back to the north and then maybe back even to the north-northwest, potentially making a second landfall somewhere in South Carolina or North Carolina by the end of the day on Friday or into early Saturday, potentially even as a hurricane again. Uh, it wouldn't be a Category 4. It would probably be um, probably a Category 1 if that occurred. But um, this it doesn't. It's not going down easily. It's uh, it's going down swinging and making problems for uh, a broad swath of the southeastern United States, to be sure. Yeah, and after hitting Cuba, it's taken quite the journey too, sort of a, a windy journey uh, up up and around. It's been a, it's been a relatively. This is just from afar, but it feels like it's been a relatively quiet hurricane season where you are. Yes, it actually, uh, it's it's been a very unusually. It was an unusually quiet first third of the hurricane season. No tropical storms or hurricanes developed in the month of August, which has uh, only happened twice in the past 75 years, uh, most recently in 1997. And that was a real surprise because uh, currently we have a La Nina, cooler waters than average ongoing in the equatorial central and eastern Pacific. And those La Nina years, they tend to be more favorable for hurricane development in the Atlantic Ocean and a little bit less favorable for uh, typhoon development in the Western Pacific and hurricane development in the Eastern Pacific. So it was a real surprise that August uh, just drew a complete blank. But the month of September, which is the most active uh, month of the Atlantic hurricane season, and in fact, about 50% of all historical activity, uh, historical hurricane activity happens just in the month of September. Uh, so September is the peak of the season. And this September has uh, made up for some lost time. It's actually been about 60% more active than an average uh, September. So busy September, likely going to be a, a busier than average October as well, um, just because La Nina years tend to uh, have a kind of extended tail of tropical activity in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean Sea, Western Atlantic into, uh, into, into October. I have about 90 seconds, uh, Ryan. We learned something, I imagine, from every one, of, every one of these. I know it's early, but what what has Ian taught us? Well, I, I think that we're going to have to take a very close look at uh, building practices and the environmental impacts of the lands that we're choosing to build our properties on. You know, what is what is the actual you know flood rate for some of these places? You know, we have we have an estimate that's you know, based on a, a stationary climate, it's based on a climate that, you know, isn't changing. Well, we know our climate is changing. So if you have a, a flood risk of, you know, if you're in a one in 100 year floodplain, well, are you truly in a 100 year floodplain? Or are you in a 30 year floodplain or a 20 or a 15 year floodplain? Um, you know, I think we I think we need to go back to the drawing board and have some tough conversations about uh, where you know, where we're developing and uh, where we're, we're building uh, some some housing units that are pretty close to the water. And uh, I, I don't know how they did today. We'll have to find out. Ryan Trishalit, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Shot and 
Henderson made a wild stab for it and fell. Here's another shot right by the shore! Fifty years ago tonight, Foster Hewitt made that call back on September 28th, 1972. You still get chills hearing it, and I was about a year and a half, so I don't remember it at all, but I've watched that goal so many times. It felt like I was there. It felt like we were all there. It's perhaps the most famous Canadian sports moment in history. Uh, Paul Henderson scoring with just 34 seconds left in Game 8 of the 72 Summit Series to give Team Canada the win and the series, the image of of Henderson jumping into Ivan Cornier's arms, perhaps one of the most defining images of Canadian sporting history. Now, the Soviets had come into Montreal nearly a month earlier, expected to put up a bit of a fight, but not much of one against a Team Canada packed with NHL superstars. Instead, it turned into a Cold War on ice, East versus West, with Canada's reputation as the best of the best on the line. Now, I spoke with Paul Henderson earlier this month about that incredible series and that historic goal. And I started by asking him about uh, the shocking wake-up call for Team Canada that was Game 1 in Montreal, a 7-3 loss to a tough, disciplined, quick, and dynamic Soviet team. Well, Clark and Ellis remember me coming back to the bench, and I looked at them and said, just after I scored, we come off. <clears throat> I said, boys, this is going to be a very long series. We knew even leading 2 nothing. I knew that we were in trouble. Uh, the, the, they broke every rule in the book. I played for Punch Imlach. You never went backwards. Never. He even hated a drop pass. When they come up, they didn't like what they looked at. They went back and regrouped. You know, what is this? And then poor Dryden, every time he thought they were going to shoot, uh, they passed. And every time he thought they were going to pass, they shot. And so, yeah, it was a rude awakening. And, and the physical conditioning was just – and the biggest mistake we made, or Harry made, our coach, Harry Sinden, he only dressed five defensemen. And after two periods, they were done like a dog's dinner. It was not good during the third period. I remember hearing that you talked to your wife after that first game and sort of said, wow – you know, it's great. It's a great honor to be part of this team, but not if not if we lose. Well, after we lost the first game in Moscow, I said to her, if we don't win the last three games, we're going to be known as the biggest losers in the history of Canadian hockey. And I think all of us knew that. But the thing is, the, the good thing about it is, even though well, we played mostly shorthanded, that first game in Moscow. And actually, I, I scored two goals in that game also. Yeah. But we really felt that we had outplayed them. And we were now getting into shape. We'd gone to uh, Sweden, and we played uh, two games there. And now, but we were getting down to these are the guys that are going to basically play, maybe change one or two people. And so I remember Harry Sinden said after the game, he came in and said, guys, we outplayed them. We should have won this game. But he said, all I want you to do is think about the next game. And and, and I think that was really – and then he walked out. He didn't go big. He said, we, we outplayed them. We should have won the game. And so that gave us a bit of uh, confidence there. And thank goodness it uh, turned out pretty well. I've watched, obviously, a lot of the highlights of that Vancouver game, Espo at the end of the game. You know, the fans were upset. What was the mood like in the dressing room after that fourth game in Vancouver and heading ultimately to Sweden and back to Moscow? 
Well, it wasn't good. And uh, we took two bad penalties at the start of that game in Montreal. And they got two power play goals right off the bat and basically uh, took us out of the game. And and the fans were disappointed. And I was disappointed, too. And so they started booing us. And it wasn't a good feeling. But Esposito, <laughs> we had four captains, but Esposito was our leader on and off the ice. And uh, I, although he did, we, none of us saw that interview that he did with Johnny Esau. Right. And after I saw it, yeah, he never saw it for years either. I, they should have showed it to us because the sweat is running off him. And Esau just let him go on. Yep. And that was a great interview. Esau just let him go on. We're disappointed and we're <laughs> despondent and we are trying, folks. And they've got a good team. But I don't think you know. <laughs> and yeah. so... But we come back to to Toronto, and I mean, even our families didn't want to talk to us. It wasn't good. But we went to Sweden. We played two games over there, got used to the bigger ice, and now we're starting to you know, get together as a team, and we're used to the bigger ice service. But one of the, 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 one of the reasons we won that is the 3,000 Canadians that went over there. Yeah. We lost the first game in Moscow. And we stood on the blue line and had to listen to the national anthem. It's a wonderful piece of music, but it's too long when you lose. And we had to skate off the ice that walked past those Canadian fans. And they stood up and they gave us a cheer. They went crazy. And it was a miserable night in Moscow. We get back there about an hour later. And there were several hundred of them outside our hotel. We got off the bus and they went crazy again, just cheering at Canada in fact, that most of them were hammered. It's got nothing to do with it. But this is what I'll say. Before the game six, seven, and eight, the Canadian national anthem has never been sung with such fervor and energy as it was. I'm standing on the blue line, and my there's hairs on my arm going up. And they got behind us like crazy. And I think it was that Esposito's talk said, listen, we need some help. And boy, did they ever come through. Yeah. What was it like landing in Moscow? I mean, obviously, at this point, the Soviets must have thought, hey, we might be able to win this and we might be able to win this on home ice. And of course, we know all the stories of what was going on behind the scenes, some of the shenanigans going on behind the scenes with the refing and so on. Well, the other thing I should tell you, too, that I, I got a concussion. That's right. Over there. That's right. Mm-hmm. And cut me down. I went into the bit. Thank goodness I was wearing a, a helmet. If I hadn't, I probably would have died. But anyway, I was knocked out, and Jim Murray, our doctor, they get me off the ice, and I had a pounding headache, of course. But he examined me, and he says, Paul, you got to take your equipment off. You've had a concussion. And so Harry Sinden came in, and he said, uh, told me what the doctor had said to him, and you better take it off. And I said to him, Harry, please don't do this. Let me play. I'll take care of myself, but let me play. And I'll never forget that. I remember looking at him, and Harry said, well, Paul, we sure as hell need you. And if you want to play, I am not going to stop you. And I said, well, give me some time. And so I laid there for about 15 minutes or so and went back out. And actually, I think the first shift back out, Clarkie hit me with a pass, and I went on a breakaway and scored on uh, on Trechiak to put us up 4-1. And if we'd have won that game, I would have had this winning goal also. But but the you know t- today I'd have never been left back you know let back out on the ice and that's what I say I had six cushions of the concussions that I know of 
But that's why I'm not very sharp today, because I have an excuse. And now sound, I got cancer. So I got cancer, I got concussions, I got an excuse for everything. You sound pretty sharp, Paul, for, for a man who's at who's seventy is it seventy nine? No, that's uh you sound you sound great. Mm. I, the memory the memories of those days too, they're so vivid. Um what was it like just being in Moscow? Was it was it hostile? Did you feel the weight that that the Soviet team now must be under, because obviously expectations would have been up by the time they got back because they were ahead. Well, for sure. But I think we we took them for granted. But after they won the first game, I think that they started, you know, they couldn't lose now. I mean, they're going to win one of the last three games. And that's the worst thing you can do is underestimate your opponent. But that was one of the things. But the thing that, that, that I think most of us were just amazed is the quality of life of the average person was just awful. Hmm. We'd come in from the airport when we landed. It was at night and never saw one house. It was all uh, condominium, you know, apartment, apartment buildings. Yeah. And there would be a light hanging down with no, just the lamp, just the light bulb, no shade or anything. And um, it, it was bleak. If you were a communist, the part of the system was okay, but the average person was just, and it, it, we hated them, but we should never have hated, hated them. We should have hated their system because they were just like us, like Trechak, a great guy. And yet they were trying to keep a wife happy, raise children just like we were. And they were in a very tough situation. But the thing about it, if you were a really good athlete, they took pretty good care of you compared to a lot of other places. But And I come back and I said, if I owned a company, I would take my people over there for three or four days then they would never complain about Canada again. And so then all of us that we come back, I've always believed we lived in the best country in the world. And that, uh, that trip sure solidified it. Yeah, that was an eye opener for everyone. I'm speaking with Paul Henderson on the 50th anniversary of the summit series. Of course, Paul responsible for not just the game winning goal in game eight, the famous one, a beautiful one in game seven as well. When we come back, we'll talk about those particularly iconic last two games and obviously the goal. Stay with us. Paul Henderson is my guest. Uh, we're talking about the 50th anniversary of the Summit Series, which is now, by the way, 50 years. As Paul was saying earlier, every year goes by just a little quicker. Uh, we're talking about just the fact, what by the fact, Time Team Canada went back to Moscow. They were down. Uh, it looked like this series could be lost. The implications of that were unimaginable if you were on that team. But that Paul was also explaining that by then, the team had really started to gel more, that they had at first underestimated the, the Soviets a bit, but they weren't underestimating them anymore. And there was a sense of momentum going into those final three games in Moscow. Tell me about game seven. I mean, you've already talked about having a concussion, um, but you, you get the sense though, that, that you can win this. There's confidence in the dressing room at this point. Well, there was, I think we all when like Harry said, when we, we played them the first game and that was the first time that we had really done it. And it was bad refereeing that we lost the game. And then and game six was another solid game. And then uh, game eight came along, and uh, and it was a real close game. And just, you know, near the end of the game, I, I think I scored the best goal of my whole life with just over two minutes left. I, went, I wasn't a guy that could go end-to-end like a Perot or a Cornway, somebody like that, to, um, but anyway, I did, and there was a one-on-four, and I went in, put it in the top corner, and and the interesting thing is, I said after the game, Delaner, I, I probably will never score a bigger goal in my whole life. How prescient! <laughs> and then two days later, 
I score, unfortunately, a garbage goal that everybody's been watching over this years. I tell you, you know what, Foster here, Henderson makes a wild stab forward and falls. Now, yes. every hockey player loves to hear that, don't you? <laughs> but then he said, scores, and that made up first. He did, yeah. No, I mean, everyone remembers that fight, that sort of idea that somehow you'd come back almost like a wrestler getting back up off the mat, right? That somehow you'd come back out of nowhere to to score that goal. That it was almost like, and, and I know this, let, the, the Game 7 goal is remarkable because it's such a beautiful goal. But the Game 8 goal, there's a really interesting story behind how you wound up on the ice, too, because you you weren't supposed to be there, were you? Well, Clark Ellis and I came off with about a minute left. And Sinden sent out uh, Esposito, Cornway, and Peter Mohavlich. And then he, he came down to us, even though it wasn't our turn. He said, if they come off, you're up. And so, okay, we're up. And so we're sitting there, and at the one-minute mark, I looked up. And, and the Russians had told us that, uh, 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 during the third period that if the game ended up in a tie, because there's going to be no overtime played, it, because the whole series would have been a tie, that they scored one more goal than us, and because of European hockey, they were going to claim victory. And so it was just spontaneous. I, I got to get on the ice, and I stood up, and I did something I never did before, and I never did it again. Started to yell at Peter Mahalovich to come off the ice. Frank was sitting beside me, and he said, what the hell are you doing? His brother, right, Did Frank Mahalovich. Yeah. Peter comes off, and then I jump over the board. But could you imagine me? I called Peter Mahalovich off the ice. And the Russians would have gone down and scored, and we'd have lost that series with me and the ice. See, I'd be living t- in Siberia today, not in if, Mississippi. If you were lucky, yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. But but instead, so tell me how that happens because we've all watched it, and I'm sure people love, and I, I understand people love to tell you where they were when, when you scored that goal. But how did you see it? How did it unfold for you uh, in those last? 30 seconds. Well, what, I, I jumped over the boards and Cornway had it at the far side. And I'm a right-hand shot coming off left wing. And I yelled at him and he saw me and he threw it across. And I was hoping just a one time it right into the top corner. And I'll, uh, uh, Ovechkin's type of deal. Yeah. But he put it, it was too far in front of me. And I had to reach for it. And their defenseman come up, put the stick between my legs. And I was going so fast, I crashed into the boards and fell down like Foster said, and I said, I, I still got time. I still got time. I can go do it again. And I got up, and, and I Esposito whacked it at Trechak, and Trechak said, it wasn't a hard shot. He should have never let the rebound go. Oh, my God. And I, I panicked. I just got it, and I tried to shoot it right along the ice initially, and he threw his pad out and got it. But he was down, took it off the side, and put it right about a foot to put it in. And, you know, the interesting part, my dad had died in 1968, and I was very close to my mom, probably closer to my mom and my dad. And I had the thought of my dad the whole series. That puck went across the line, and I said, Dad would have loved this one. And I had a touch of a melancholy. Can you believe that? And, that? and then I jumped into Cornway's arm and jumped into his arms, and that's why he's had a couple of uh, back operations over the years since then. <laughs> so you and thought of your I, was were yeah. saying, that we did it. We did it. We knew that we didn't. But you know, the interesting thing, we go back to the bench and Harry said to us, you guys finish it off. And I said, Harry, I'm done. I, I, I'd be petrified to play the last 34 seconds. You put somebody else out there. 
I, I, I just knew it. I, I, I was petrified to play the last 34 seconds. Yeah, and, just in uh, case you, were, don't, you don't want to tempt fate too much. Well, I, I was just done. Physically, yeah. mentally, emotionally, I was done. And, and, and you know the interesting thing, after the game, we go in there, and there was no jumping around or anything like that. I think everybody, there was a smile. We we're having a beer and just look at the guy across or at the room. And so it was at least a half an hour before I even get, took my skates off. We just sat there and enjoyed the moment. And uh, great memory. Paul Henderson, it's been a real joy. Thank you so much for sharing your memories of that, uh, that series, of that wonderful day, uh, that wonderful goal. Much appreciated. Thank you. Foster Hewitt there talking about Vladislav Tretsiak. If there was one name, one player that came to represent the formidable foe that the Soviet Union team would be in 1972, it was an unknown, lanky, 20-year-old goaltender who happened to wear number 20 as well. Goaltending had always been seen as a weakness of the Soviet team by Canadian hockey pros, one they were eager to take advantage of in 1972. Instead, they came up against a certain Vladislav Tretsiak, who would make spectacular save after spectacular save over those eight games. He faced a total of 267 shots and saved more than 88% of them, significantly higher than Ken Dryden and Tony Esposito in nets for Canada. And that series would propel Tretsiak into hockey fame. He'd be named the best Russian player of the 20th century, be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, win three Olympic gold medals, 10 world championships, and a Canada Cup before retiring in 1984. But he could not stop that Paul Henderson shot late in Game 8 in 1972. In that iconic photo of Henderson, as I mentioned, celebrating that goal, you can see Tretsiak in the background, sprawled on the ice, looking up at Henderson and Cornelier, wondering, I wondered what was going through his head. I asked Paul Henderson what I should talk to, what his memories of Tretsiak were, should I speak to him? And here's what Henderson had to say. I was inducted into the International Hockey Hall of Fame. I didn't know, but he's introducing me. And he said some nice things about me, probably because he had to. <laughs> but then he looked at me and he pointed his finger at me and he said, Paul, I know why you scored that last goal. I've looked at those replays over and over. And then he paused for about six or seven seconds, just looking at me. Paul, the reason you scored that goal, it was very bad goaltending. <laughs> and he brought the whole house down. And he come up and gave me a big bear hug. I've got to know him. He's just a terrific guy. Paul Henderson talking about Vladislav Tretsiak there. So what did the Soviet team and their young goaltender think arriving in Montreal, coming into that series against the best the NHL had to offer? How did their early success change their ambitions as that series went on and they headed back to Moscow? And what went through Tretsiak's mind when that Henderson goal went in 50 years ago tonight, 50 years ago tonight, not a goal. To answer those questions and more, joining me is number 20, Vladislav Tretsiak. Thank you so much for your time. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Tell me about it's 50 years. That feels like a long time. What are, what are your memories of first arriving in Canada for that first game uh, back in 1972? I'm very old. You do? Because for us, 
Big surprise. Uh, we play uh, Montreal Forum, 18,000 people, noisy, or the musical. In Russia, different, different situation. More quiet, not too many people inside Hockey Stadium. For us, uh, before 1972, many uh, hockey players, veteran hockey players, oh, NHL, uh, the best. Uh, the best league, uh, the very strong uh, hockey players fighting, <laughs> yeah. strong shooting for uh, for goal. Um, it's sometimes very nervous for us. Big exam, you know, exam. A Same test, school. yeah, a big test, yeah. It's good test because we represent not only Soviet hockey. Okay, and. Uh, Russian team, many times Olympic champion, many times world championship in Europe, an amateur. And NHL is a little bit different, you understand? Mm-hmm. And we represent not only a Russian team, a Soviet team, we represent all amateur hockey, you understand? We have big exam for us, big exam for us. And if you ask me, Vladislav, you nervous? They're nervous 100%. Because I never know after first first game who are you? Maybe bad goalie, it bad team, and maybe no bad team. <laughs> it's maybe good. It's good team. It's good hockey in the Europe too. Yeah, you were just twenty. You were you were very young. Um, after the first game, the Soviets win. You win by a lot. Were you surprised? For us, big surprise. Because if you ask me before game, Vladislav, how you play against NHL? I don't know. Nobody knows what score. Nobody knows. No, I know. Canadian knows maybe 12 goals, maybe 15 goals. I don't know. Because the start, very quick. 32nd, first goal. And the second goal, after six minutes. Wow. <laughs> to nothing, 18,000 people, Canadian fan, very noisy in Russia. Yeah. 250 million people look, oh, who has goalie? Vladislav, bad goalie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hockey fan, sometimes life, sometimes don't life. You understand? Yes. It's, it's, it's true. It's true. It is. Yeah. Because the First game very important for us, very important because the first time play the best player uh, who is playing against us NHL. We proud each hockey players. I remember the first time we go ice, and my team stay in the line. One man said Harlamov, Mikhailov, Tretyak. Two times, maybe two clubs in maybe Canadian and uh, Russian embassy, maybe <laughs> Russian right. hockey players. Um, and against us, you look uh, Kandragin, um, Ivan Kornayev, 10 Stanley Cup. If you stand up, maybe two, three minutes, you're saying, unbelievable. I think, oh, Canada, hockey country. How you life hockey players, huh? Unbelievable. Yeah. When you arrived in Canada to play the NHL players, had you studied them? Did you know each? Did you know what Esposito no. would do? Did you know what no. Cornway would do? No. No, no, because we don't have uh, video, 
video cassette in Canadian too, because uh, Canadian hockey players said, oh, easy, easy way, easy way. Who is playing against? Amateur. <laughs> oh, easy, easy game. Oh, the best mistake, best mistake for hockey players. It was. Uh, Vladislav, Paul Henderson tells me that after his first shift, after he scored in that first game, he came back to the bench and said, this is going to be very tough. This is a very good team. Oh, yeah, I don't know. You ask Paul Henderson. <laughs> I think two nothing, six minutes, I think maybe easy game. Maybe two nothing right away, maybe easy game. No, because uh, in Russian team play in the first period, is play very well, good play, good passes, good. You play teams, you know, the teams mm-hmm. like this. So you get to you play in Toronto, you play in Winnipeg, you play in Vancouver. Um, you've you've won two, tied one, and lost one. You're going back to Moscow in leading in a series that you were supposed to lose. How did you feel when you were when you finished those first four games in Canada? Ah, uh, I feel very good because uh, my nervous the te- nervous team go out because uh, after first game. Each hockey player in Russia is heroic because we beat NHL hockey players. You understand? And revolution. Revolution hockey. Because yeah. today, 15 years ago, we play against Team Canada. It's the, the super super serie. We talk about, about super serie after 15, yeah. year, 15 years. Yeah, You understand? Yes. Why? Because the best hockey in the, in the best. After the game, four games in, in Canada... In Russian hockey players, he go to aircraft, he go to Moscow. He is the first game, no, before first game in Moscow, said, oh, okay, we we beat Canada in Canada. You play more hockey ring, hockey fan, Canadian. For us, easy play home. You know why? In hockey, game, hockey, area, hockey uh, stadium, more while. Okay, we play many times like this. Same, you have a good experience play same same design hockey hockey rink and uh, the Russian bigger rink. Fan. Right, yeah, hockey yeah. play. Okay, we play much better because first game we beat Canada. The free games sit okay for us, no problem. Free games, one game win. We 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 uh, last Super Serie. Uh, in, uh, in the Soviet Union winner. It's you figure, hockey you, players. You figured you had home ice advantage for sure. I'm speaking with Vladislav Tretsiak. You'll recognize the name. He was a Hockey Hall of Famer, now voted uh, Russia's best hockey player of the 20th century. And, of course, a name everyone remembers from the 1972 Summit Series 50 years ago. This week, in fact, it's 50 years ago tomorrow night that Paul Henderson scored his game, his series-winning goal. And we'll talk about that when we come back. My guest this half hour is Vladislav Tretsiak. Uh, you'll recognize the name, number 20, perhaps one of the most famous Russian hockey players, Soviet hockey players ever, to this day, a uh, member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, Mr. Tretsiak, we were talking about when you got back to Moscow. And I guess if we go ahead a bit to the games where Canada started to play better, or at least started to win, what do you think the difference was? The Team Canada, in playing Canada. Mm, inside hockey players in the shell said, oh, uh, Soviet team, be- uh, not, a, not a strong team, you know. After four games, 
Okay, then, 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 okay, Bill. Oh, be careful. In Russian hockey team, it's a very good play. We lose at home. I don't know how you how you play inside home in Russian play. Maybe much better. And Team Canada together, very, very close in four games in Russia. Very close. Cool. Because dangerous. For future, yeah. big dangerous because each hockey player is a heroine, okay, in Canada. Yeah. Hockey fan, Ivan Kordayek, Andrano, Rotel, Esposito. God. God for hockey fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, after four games in, in Canada, mm, problem sometimes name each hockey player. You understand? Yeah, they play it as one, not yeah, as a team. Yeah, Team Canada go to Russia. It's uh, the team. It's very important team. No alone. It's it's very important. If you'd like to win, if you'd like um, win the Stanley Cup, uh, the World Championship, the League Championship, it's very important team, not each hockey players. Maybe a good hockey, big star, no, no team, and never win. You understand? Yep. In the Canadian hockey team come to Russia, and the same thing, Russian team before visit to Canada. You understand? More concentration, more team, more dangerous how you play next game. In the team, Canada... Play unbelievable in 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 the three games. Uh, they beat Russia in Moscow. It's it's not possible. No possible. I it didn't seem. I mean, didn't seem possible <laughs> at the time. Tell me about tell tell me about game eight about the goal because it's fifty years that that Paul Henderson scored that last goal, and we've often heard Paul Henderson describe that goal. Uh, how did you see that goal when you were in Nets? You, how did that play unfold for you? Oh, many questions asked me in 15 years. Yes. Last goal I see, I think, I look every every time if you ask me. Yeah. <laughs> because the Paul Hendel lucky. It's very lucky hockey players because it's my goal net. He fell. He fell. That's right. Down, fall fell, down. Fell. Yeah, my defenseman no remember him, no remember because full down. I don't know why. What, what happened? You understand? Yep. And Valery Vasily, defenseman, thirty-three seconds keeps the puck. If thirty-three seconds closing, we beat Canada because we score more uh, uh, puck, more goals. Give that's more right. Score, he scored yeah. more goals, right? Yeah. If you Valery Vasiliev maybe shoot the board, you can go out. And in, in the puck, no problem, you know. Mm-hmm. The big, I see the big mistake. <laughs> you make a pass and not uh, in the uh, other zone. Ivan Cornoyer and the small, small hockey players, maybe like this, make <laughs> you take you stop the puck and you make up in my the two defensemen go to Ivan Cornoyer and uh, Paul Henderson behind my net come to me. You make a pass. Shoot for me. I make a make a save. A second time score for me. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Because if ask me many years ago, if you Soviet team last period five three, we right. lose. I say you crazy. They never, never Soviet Union lose five three last period. You re- you remember? Obviously, you remember that. G- puck going across the line. What did you think? Did you think, oh no, yes. oh no. Yeah. 
Все. Same yesterday. I never, same, more, I, I never, never forget. Fifty years later. Fifteen yeah. years. Same yesterday. Wow. What was it like after when you got back to the dressing room? Was everyone were were you happy that you played so well against a very very good team, or were you very disappointed that you'd lost? Disappointed we lose. Disappointed. I'm very tired. I'm very tired because I play. Sorry, eight games. Phil Esposito, four games. Ken Dryden, four games. Ladislav Tretiak, eight games. Eight games against who? Against the best players, Canadian. It's very tough for 20 years uh, hockey players, for goals. Yeah, you understand? A lot of pressure, too. Yeah, a lot of pressure because I'm very happy I play against Team Canada. I'm very happy is a God give me chance to play against Team Canada. You know... I think uh, never lose because 15 years, 15 years after you talk yeah. about the Super Series 1972. Why? Because the game, unbelievable. So, yeah, I congratulate Canada winner. I not, never lose because it's a different hockey. Yeah? Okay? Do different hockey. Europe hockey in, in uh, North America hockey is different. You understand? Different. Yeah. Everything different. And uh, hockey fan NHL look different hockey. It's very important. For for us, in different hockey look too. I think two teams, Team Canada, Team Russia, never lose. Never Every, lose. Everybody win. Because the best hockey is, for me, I think, maybe hockey fan in the world. Hockey won. Hockey, yeah, hockey won. won 100%. If before... Uh, 1972 Canadian don't like us. No, a Russian very, very respect Canadian. Very expect. Canadian no respect us. Today, the best players, the best friends is Padita, Hadet, and Kandradin because we have a good deal together. Two teams, Canadian, Soviet team, we got good deal for, for hockey, for hockey team. For hockey fan. It changed hockey True. forever. I mean, it changed True. your life. I, I know, but it changed hockey forever. It did. It changed. Yes. When you yes. look at hockey today, it's a reflection and, of that. Yeah. yeah. After 1972, we opened door. Many hockey players play in the Sweden, Finland, Czech, and Russian. After maybe some 10, 15 years, today, 50, 55 hockey players, Avechkin, Malkin, too many, lots of many, many, many good hockey players play Pittsburgh, Washington, the Caprizov. It's of good and because Vladislav and hockey team, my hockey team, open door in North America in, high, in NHL. Vladislav Tretsiak, thank you so much for sharing your memories of that time with me. I appreciate it, and uh, thank you. Yes, it's 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 great to great to hear from you. Good luck, everybody. Thank you very much. We're talking storms this hour. We started in Florida where Hurricane Ian continues to do all kinds of damage. We're going to head north now to Newfoundland where they're assessing the damage from post-tropical storm Fiona. The Prime Minister was in Porto Basque. We'll get to our question first, though. We're talking about this dog import ban that came into effect today, halting rescues from 100 countries. It is World Rabies Day. That's why it was put into effect today, the 28th. Uh, so this means the dog rescues from Africa, Central and South America, Asia, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, all banned to try to prevent 
uh, to protect Canada against rabies. Uh, animal rights groups are saying, well, you know, the problem is there was no consultation on this. A complete ban is not justified. No one else is doing this. The Americans had a ban in for a while. Let me know what you think. Betty in Vancouver sent uh, many reasons why she is in favor of it, uh, not least of which is that uh, she feels that it's just simply a good idea that uh, – that a lot of these that we don't know where a lot of these rescues come from, and that uh, there's an industry there that she doesn't like or doesn't worries about. Uh, to paraphrase Betty, I apologize. Uh, let me know what you think. Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight is the text line. Let me know if you think it's a good idea. Should we be banning rescues from from a hundred countries around the world in order to protect against rabies in this country? Uh, we'll hear from Camille Labchuk a little later in the show uh, about why it's a bad idea. But let me know what you think. Well, one of the hardest hit areas by post-tropical storm Fiona was Porto Basque on the southwestern tip of Newfoundland. It destroyed about 100 homes there, dragging some of them out to sea. Uh, there was record-breaking storm surges. I'm sure you've seen the pictures. Well, the Prime Minister was in that community today to see firsthand the collapsed houses and the heaps of debris left behind. Justin Trudeau again committed the government to helping residents there in the days, weeks, and months to come. He confirmed Ottawa will match donations to a Red Cross disaster relief fund, which has already collected $10 million for people affected by the storm. He says the government knows that with winter coming, people are going to need longer-term solutions. The Premier announced a $30 million package. The federal government will be part of that. Uh, we're going to continue to step up as necessary. The one thing that we've seen already is the level of strength of community as people have been there to support each other. Uh, the federal government, the provincial government, municipal leadership, uh, we're all going to be working together to make sure that people uh, get settled by winter. The Prime Minister in Porto Basque, Newfoundland today. Well, this is the time of week where we check in with a Canadian journalist to see what they've been covering. It's also World Press Freedom Day. So we thought we'd take you to Porto Basque and the community newspaper there known as Wreckhouse Press or Workhouse Press would be more like it this past week. And having the Prime Minister in town met yet another busy day for Rene Roy. He's the editor-in-chief of Wreckhouse Press, who's been on the front lines of this international story for days now, and he joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. What a whirlwind. I mean, if, I, just, if you could take me back to the to just the lead up and the night. I mean, you were busy trying to cover stuff, I'm sure, and trying to get word out to the people in the community. At the same time, you must have been had your own stuff to worry about, your own property and your own love. Very ones. much. Very much. Yeah. Um, it uh, it came on us a lot more rapid than I think anybody expected. And I know we all knew it was going to come when it came. Uh, but when I say more rapid, I think we didn't grasp the speed at which it was going to accelerate into what it became. Uh, it was really astounding. Uh, well, and trying to report on that and get out information about the evacuation here in my neighborhood, um, trying to get information out about uh, emergency crews and uh, the destruction of homes down on the street, which is, you know, it's, it's a 90 second walk from my home. Uh, you know, you, you're trying to remain a little, separated but at the same time you 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 know what's happening and you know these people down there so it was yeah. an extreme challenge yeah these are your friends and your neighbors right this you this is not reporting in some place where you don't know anyone this is this is all very personal it's a tough job absolutely it uh there are moments like i uh, said in an, a previous interview where uh you know a bit of neutrality or a bit of distance from a story can make the story more poignant but at the same time a bit of closeness and a bit of involvement in the story that you're reporting can do the exact same thing. So it's a matter of trying to figure out where you want to be with that. And there are moments that, uh, you know, that are easier than others. 
Tell me about Friday night into Saturday morning or early Saturday morning in your case, I would imagine. Yeah, very much early. Uh, um, the wind kept accelerating. And uh, I know you hear people talking about uh, tornadoes and hurricanes and how the wind is uh, a constant element that's, that's always going. Uh, but until you're in that kind of thing where there is just an absolute roar in your house or in your ear or in the background, for 12 hours, uh, very much preys on your nerves. And uh, when it began, you know, at, at four or five in the morning or three or four or five, I, I truly don't know, uh, none of us were asleep. Um, my sister, my mother, um, none of us could sleep. And uh, and the whole world began crashing at a, around seven o'clock in the morning. We saw the images here of the damage. I mean, I think everyone's seen the images of the damage now, but what was it like to be right there? You must have at some point decided you had to go look at what was happening. Um, when I heard the multi multitude of sirens coming down the road, um, this is such a small community that based, uh, and of course, I used to be a first responder here, based on the sirens and the location and where it's coming from, you, you can tell where the, where the emergency vehicles are going. And I knew where they were going, right down here. So, of course, I got out and uh, I went to see if I needed to be helping on an emergency basis or if there was a story to be had. And, uh, yeah, uh, things took an immediate turn for from, from wanting to help to abject horror. Uh, you know, people were screaming that a building was gone. People were gone because at that time it was it was sheer madness so nobody knew anything at that point this this was seconds old um and i i attempted to get down to to get a look at it and and it was simply too unsafe the entire street was uh i, I would say half a foot underwater um there was debris everywhere it was impossible to to stand or hear anything beyond as i described that incessant roar um and uh, at that point, I decided the best recourse for me to, to not be in any danger was to get the hell out of the way. You must, you must have, I mean, it would be hard to imagine what it must have been like when you then came back out to see what exactly had happened. Um, we came out, uh, my mother, my sister and I came out. Uh, we, we spent some time in the office and homes here. And uh, when we came out, we could, uh, the mist and the sea, the salt spray was such that it stung your eyes constantly, um, but we could see well enough to see a blue house further down, uh, you know, just a little approximate view from our home. And uh, when we realized how badly damaged that was, uh, I, I don't recall if it was me or my sister who took the photo, but we took a photo of that and uh, we began to hear a high-pitched squeal like a, a consistent whistle. And it occurred to me that it was the emergency broadcast system on the uh, fire uh, fire truck, the, the uh, emergency rescue truck. And at that point, I heard that it was mandatory evacuation, um, pack a bag, and and go. So and that's, that's what you what did. We did. That's what we did. Didn't even blink. Uh, well, I went around to my neighbors here. Um, I live on a dead end street, and I went around to uh, all of my neighbors and indicated that this was a, a mandatory evacuation. Yeah, pack a bag. You need to leave right away. How soon before you were able to come back? 
Uh, we evacuated approximately, in fact, actually, it was uh, 22 minutes after 10 on Saturday morning, uh, almost at the sheer height of the storm. And uh, we were able to return at, I believe it was 2.30 Sunday afternoon. We uh, we were only 10 minutes away. We stayed at my cousin Sharon's home. Um, she in a more elevated position. It was a much safer location than what we had here in our, uh, in our open home, open to the road kind of thing. I would imagine that already people were, were looking. I mean, I know information travels quickly in a, in a smaller town, but people must have already been looking to you to some extent to try to figure out what the bigger picture was. Did, did you get to work right away? Uh, we were, as soon as we were up at, uh, as I say, b- between 6 and 7 o'clock when that that happened, uh, we began tweeting information immediately. Um, Wi-Fi on a good day in some areas of town here is uh, almost there. Uh on this day, it was almost nothing. So uh, getting information out was challenging. We weren't able to upload any videos. Photographs were taking almost five to eight minutes to upload. It was it was very, very difficult. Uh, but we were tweeting the whole time. Uh, we actually did a, uh, a video of us evacuating, driving along the uh, the harbor, the main harbor, past the Marine Atlantic ferries and, and getting to a safe location. We actually had to go around the entire town because the low-lying street that would have taken us directly to my cousin's home was underwater and had a boat and a shed in the middle of it. So we had to take a 10-minute drive to go three minutes away. I'm speaking with Rene Roy. He's the uh, editor-in-chief of Wreckhouse Press in Porto Basque in Newfoundland. He's telling us about uh, both being a reporter and uh, a survivor of uh, of post-tropical storm Fiona all at once. Um, when we come back, we'll talk about just the importance of community news, uh, the, the service you provide, the response uh, to your reporting, as well as it hasn't been any less busy the last five days. You had the prime minister in town. We'll get to that after this. Rene Roy is with us this half hour. He's the editor-in-chief of Wreckhouse Press, uh, the local paper in Porto Basque, a, t- a town and name that all, most of us will know now, given the destruction there from a post-tropical storm Fiona over the weekend, and now the attempts to rebuild the people who've been in and out of that community. The prime minister was there today. I mean, you've been working nonstop since Saturday morning, more or less. Yes, that's, that's about accurate, but uh, I'm far from the only one that's uh, doing this. You know, it's it's myself, my sister, who are the primary operators and owners of the paper and the uh, the company. But we have an outstanding journalist. Uh, she's not on location. She uh, she works remotely from her home, two hours up the uh, the highway in a place called Stephenville and Kippins. Um, she's top shelf. Uh, couldn't be happier with her. But being on the ground and getting the information and and attending these uh, press conferences and news releases, uh, earning the information, gaining photographs, that is falling to us, no question. And, of course, the interviews and the requests for media attention. Um, yeah, it's it's been, it's been a long week. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. What's it been like to, to try to cover this story and be part of this story all at once? I mean, these, again, these are your neighbors. These are people you know. These are friends, obviously, relatives, people that you've spent a lifetime with. What's it like to try to... Uh, cover cover the story for your paper as well. You, I, I imagine you probably have to be very careful with what it is you talk about and the information you're providing. Make sure it's correct because there's a lot of eyes on you. Well, that's the thing. Um, you know, before the winds were down, um, we were receiving, pardon me, we were getting um, requests for information from um, local and provincial radio stations. Um, the CBC 
uh, global television because they were aware due to Hurricane Eagle or uh, the, the weather event we had last year um, that, uh, you know, we were an entity here. So we began to try and get information out there so that people were aware of how incredibly serious this weather was here. This was this was like a 15, you know, a 12 or 14 hour bomb that went off and it just kept going off and it kept going off. And we were the only ones here. Uh, we did have a couple of meteorologists. Uh, we had a uh, Newfoundland television journalist here as well. But if you don't have television or satellite or power, this is what you got. So uh, almost all of our uh, information was being provided by Twitter and on our Facebook feed. Um, Twitter seemed to be the one where everybody went. Um, we took videos. Uh, we took photographs. We shared information about emergency warming centers, evacuations. And at the same time, we were trying to give interviews and we were trying to, you know, let people like you know, you know, what it was like here and still get information out for the people that were still in danger. It was a, it was an extreme challenge, but I, I like to think that my crew and myself, uh, at least did, did well by the town. What's it been like in terms of access, just trying to do your job? I know there have been a lot of politicians in and out of your community in the past couple of days. The prime minister was there today. How has that been to have so many people converge on the town and still try to tell a story? Are you getting the information that you feel you need, that you feel you need to share? Yeah, I am. Um, being the local uh, journalist organization here, the local media here, there is no one else uh, in this you know, area besides us. Well, apart from last, you know, the last week. Uh, but, you know, we have unfettered access to um, media and press conferences and telephone calls. Um, we are receiving information from all the entities. Uh, we're receiving, if, if we don't get the information, we get the phone number where we can get that information. Um, so I do feel that we're being amply informed and uh, given enough access so that we can properly do our jobs. Now, that yeah, said, yeah. there are still areas that are just far too dangerous to sensibly go to. Um, and, you know, there are, there are still a couple of spots that I haven't been to yet. I simply haven't had the, uh, the opportunity to go there. And hopefully, if things settle down tomorrow, uh, then I will be able to get there. But, you know, it's uh, it's it's just going to be a long week again. We just published our paper yesterday, and I've got to lay it out and prepare to publish again on Monday. So that wow. means tomorrow and the next day and the next day I print. You know, I know you've been doing this for for quite a while. When you look at this, what's happened and and where you've been and the kind of information you provided, what does it tell you about the value of what it is that you do in in downtimes, not just now, but for community media in a much broader context? I think there is, and I've heard the term, I'm sure you might have as well, uh, a news desert in Newfoundland. And it's vast. Most of the information people are getting is from the internet or it's from word of mouth from your friend and so on. But when you look on a Facebook group and you read information, you have absolutely no idea about the credibility of that source. You don't know if, you know, they're just out there to raise a stink or they're telling the truth. So what we try to do is we try to get behind that information and find out, hey, is this person telling the truth about this truck or that house or this and that? And 
lending that credibility to the citizens and the, the residents of the community not only provides everybody with the right information, but it makes that person, that that resident and their reputation more solidified. So not only are we informing, but we're also trying to help the, the community as well so that they know who the trusted sources are. Where do you go from here with this story? What are you looking at in the next few days, weeks? Well, I'm going to begin by saying I hope we all get a bit of rest around here. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's It's been a really long week. I know our mayor is beyond exhausted. Uh, I mean, he's been an absolute unit. Uh, super impressed with him. Um, you know, all of our council, my staff, uh, myself, everybody's tired. Everybody's anguished and everybody's stressed. And it's a it's just been a hell of a week, obviously. Uh, where do we go from here? Um, you know, we go wherever the assistance and the government and the people want to go. Like, you know, I, where they want to take us, I should say. I apologize. Yeah. You know, the government is going to provide money and opportunity for these people to rebuild their homes. If these people choose not to rebuild down there, and I got to say, I, I think 90% will not rebuild there. This was just too much. And these are people that have never left their home for a storm, ever. And now they don't want to go back at all. That is a profound shift in the mentality of this town. And as for where we go from here, I think, like myself, I am safe and my home is untouched and my mother's home is untouched. I'll stay because that's what... That, that's what I need to do. Um, for the people that have had this incredible suffering and this incredible devastation in their lives, I can't speak to them or for them. I, mean, I, I can't speak on their behalf, but I can say that the mentality has profoundly shifted about having a home on the water in Florence. It's, it's palpable. The apprehension is, is palpable now. Renee Roy, uh, fantastic work. Thank you so much for talking to me tonight. I truly appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me on.